0: Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day that you've made. Thank you that you make all things new, that you are a savior and a redeemer and the lover of our souls. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills us and the will that you put in us to follow you and to desire you, the hunger that you put within our hearts to read your word and to walk in obedience to what we hear. And Lord, we desire for you to have your way in our hearts, that we would follow you, we would discern your leading, we would be empowered by your presence, we would walk in obedience, we would confess our sins before you and repent and be cleansed of a guilty conscience, be cleansed of our sin because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you for your promises and the power of your word and uh, have your way in our hearts, Lord. Unite us to fear you in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, if you'll turn there. We'll begin that soon. I grew up the son of a carpenter. I learned in theory, I suppose, I, I did also work in a trade for 11 years, and you learn that there's the right tool for the job, and that's important. Uh, my dad told me a story of a fellow worker, I think in the 70s, where a pneumatic nail or, or staple was discharged into his femur, not his, but his co-workers, and uh, went to the hospital, and and uh, the the doctor was having difficulty removing it with his tools. They kept breaking. So my dad went down to the truck, got the linesman pliers, and the doctor used those to pull it out. It's the right tool for the job. So uh, it, that's what you got to do. Um, using a tool for an unintended purpose can lead to damage, and it's not going to work as well. Like, I've been guilty of this. I I've gone to the garage five times already, and, and I need a hammer, but I've got a wrench in my hand, or a, a spanner, or the back of a, a screwdriver, and I'll use that as a hammer. Has anyone else ever done this? All right. so you, you're, you're just a bit lazy. You have a hammer, but you're gonna use your, your spanner as a hammer because it's in your hand already, and you don't want to go back again. And uh, yeah, you can ruin your tools that way, and it's not as good as a hammer. Or you can, you can have the need of a specialty tool that you don't have, and so you're trying to be resourceful with bits of wire and other things to make something work. That's just, it's insufficient. You could um, be ignorant of a particular tool needed, where you're like, I can't get this, this, uh, this nut removed or something, and it has, has a specialty bit that you need to buy. And you're like, I didn't even know that existed. So because you were ignorant of this tool that exists, you didn't have the tool, you weren't able to do the job. Now new innovations in technology, it improves performance, it makes difficult jobs easy, it makes something that was once impossible, now a job done. The writer of Hebrews explained that this is what the law was, that this new covenant that Jesus had established in his blood, it made the old covenant obsolete as a means of being righteous before God, of finding favor with him. The law, the tabernacle, the articles of the temple, the high priest, they were shadows that hinted at the reality that is Christ and what he has accomplished. A new covenant based on better promises. The law was weak and inadequate because men were unable to keep it. Jesus, our high priest, he's made atonement with his blood. He's risen from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father where he lives to make intercession for us. So the new covenant can do what the old covenant could never do, make a sinner into a saint and make a believer the temple of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which was the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Speaking to Hebrews who understood the layout of the temple, most of them had never seen inside because it was a place inaccessible to them. Only the priests were able to enter this place. Within that enclosed tabernacle, there were two different areas. The first was the sanctuary it had. When you walked in, on the left, you'd have the, the lampstand with the seven lamps burning, the altar of incense, and then the table of showbread on the right. And then there was a large curtain in the back. Behind that curtain, in the Holy of Holies, that's a place. So the priests would go into this first area uh, twice a day, at least, to do their uh, ordinances. They would offer uh, incense. They would pray. There would be singing In the courts, they would um, remove the bread at the proper times, once a week, keep adding oil to the uh, lampstand, and then one day a year, they went beyond that. Only one person, the high priest, could go beyond that, behind the veil where the Holy of Holies was, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would go in there on the Day of Atonement with that golden censer that had coals from the altar with incense, so there was this... Kind of fog in there, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the top of the uh, ark to provide atonement for the sins of the people, whether they, they were sins unknown to them or known. And then we're told what was in the ark of the covenant. So we're just going further and further inside where you have the pot of manna and the rod of Aaron that budded and the Ten Commandments the contents of the ark are really a picture of God's power and goodness. That pot of manna was a reminder that God miraculously fed them every day for 40 years after they came out of Egypt. To silence the murmuring of those who challenged the authority of Aaron, the rods of 12 tribes were laid before the Lord, and overnight, the rod of Aaron budded and had leaves on it and bore almonds. So overnight, this was Is miraculous, so he's lay that up against the rebels, so they know that I have chosen Aaron as the high priest. The Ten Commandments—that was a gracious revelation of God's standard of righteousness, written with the finger of God. And all these items—they also point to Christ. He's the living bread who's come from heaven. If we partake of Him, we will live not just for a day, but forever. That staff, that rod shows all authority has been given him by the Father. He rose from the dead like a branch that was cut off that is now alive, bearing fruit. He is the lawgiver. He's righteous in himself. All those articles, it also reveals our great need because people murmured about the manna. They weren't happy with it. And people rebelled against Christ and refused his authority they murdered the just one, the son of God. They were guilty of breaking all his commandments. So it shows a need of man for God in all three of those articles. Ultimately, the ark was plundered, all the contents lost. The coming and ministry of Jesus, it reduced the ark really to an useless empty relic, made obsolete by the new covenant. He is our high priest who lives. Hebrews 9 verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for a present for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Under that first covenant, there was so much preparation that was required, right? The articles of gold had to be made. The special incense needed to be mixed the oil beaten for the lamps, the the anointing oil mixed up, the the sanctified priests, the wood cut, the the fabrics put together and the sockets all assembled and there was just a lot of work. And then they, they had to wear the right vestments and say the right things and then go in on the right day in the right manner to offer the sacrifice. They would make atonement for their own sin and the sin of the nation. And it's like, It's pointed out that they had to make atonement for sins they committed in ignorance because we are greater sinners than we can fathom. You can try to confess everything that you know, but there's a lot of ways that we fall short and sin that we don't know. It hasn't been opened, our eyes haven't been opened to that yet. So we need the forgiveness of God. More offerings were always needed because people kept sinning. All these offerings, all this Preparation, it didn't change the hearts of people who continued to sin. The the service of the tabernacle was always incomplete, even when done properly, because it would need to be done tomorrow, next year, over and over and over again. It did nothing to perfect the priests who offered those sacrifices, nor the people they represented. Verse 8 says the Holy Spirit revealed the way into the holiest, was not manifested in the tabernacle. They thought that that was the place where you draw near to God, which it was under the old covenant. But Jesus brought in a new covenant based upon better promises. That, That gilded ark, the holy place, that was just a symbol of the heavenly reality It's like, yes, God's presence is here, but this is just a picture. This is a hint. This is not the real thing. The real thing is in the presence of God in heaven. Historians and Jews are largely in agreement that the second temple, which stood at that time, lacked the Ark of the Covenant. So on the Day of Atonement, when you go into the second temple, into the Holy of Holies, it was an empty room. There was nothing in there. Gifts and sacrifices, they continued to be offered according to the law because that's what the law required. But it was impotent to cleanse the conscience. It was unable to change the priests from the people or the people on the inside. It was all about the food that you eat, you don't eat, the way you clean and cleanse and wash until the time of reformation. And that's what Jesus did. He reformed the whole system. He changed it completely. And this is the only time this Greek word is used in the Bible. It means to straighten thoroughly, to rectify. So the weakness of the first covenant was uh, corrected with the second covenant, a better covenant. When you think about the law, can you recall a single time where there's a promise of eternal life? You won't find one. There's nothing really about heaven in the law at all. It's all about temporal blessing. It's about uh, rain in season, having fruitful crops, being blessed in the land. And there's a lot of curses as well. If you were to add up the blessings and the curses under the old law, the curses far outweigh the blessing, warnings for sin. So the new covenant was not just an improvement. It wasn't like covenant 2.0. It was a new covenant. It was a total change of how we approach God now. It made a way to do things that were impossible before because God was going to change and transform people from within, not just washing their hands or avoiding a certain food. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Of necessity, the tabernacle was made out of earthly things. It was made out of fabrics and wood and gold, Dug from the earth. It was constructed by craftsmen. The wood needed to be cut, the fabrics needed to be woven, the gold smelted and shaped, hammered into place, everything assembled by workers. It was a, a tabernacle of earthly things for people of the earth. Jesus, however, came as high priest. He came not of this earth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was conceived in the Virgin Mary. Jesus entered the most holy place, not a tabernacle made with hands, but he went into heaven, into the most holy place, into the presence of God with his own blood to provide, it says, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, this would really get the the interest of people under law because they're like, whoa, that's something the law could never say. Eternal redemption? Redemption? And he already had it. He obtained it. At best, sins were covered for a year. The offering of the blood of bulls, goats, and the ashes of the heifer, under the old law, it could temporarily sanctify and purify the flesh. But Jesus redeems and purifies the souls of all who trust in him forever. The law, it had limited effectiveness. It had to be done day after day. And the point is, if the blood of beasts could sanctify under the old covenant, how much more the blood of Jesus under the new covenant, having obtained eternal redemption. Numbers 19, 1 through 10, there's a lot of details about this red heifer. And uh, it's not something that I remember hearing much about growing up in the church, Uh, not much taught on it. Um, but it was essential for purification. That's how you would get the waters of separation. And uh, there was a, a coworker at work who, who was not at all interested in spiritual things, but was very interested in this red heifer. He's like, you know, I know about this red heifer. Yeah, I bet you haven't looked into that, have you? And I'm like, red heifer? I'm not really sure what you're talking about. Oh yeah, I'm, I got my finger on the pulse of what's going on in the Middle East. Like this, this red heifer, it's a big deal. I was like, Okay, so I, I looked in the Bible, like, yeah, there is a red heifer. Numbers 19.9, it says, Then a man who was clean after the red heifer was slain shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. They shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. If you go to the Temple Institute today or you check out their website, they have been tirelessly working for years to get a red heifer. They've been breeding different kinds, and it has a very specific uh, requirements. It has to be three years old, a female, no no hairs differing. It has to be all red. I think I read if there's three hairs of a different color, it's no good. So they're, they're working. They haven't found one yet, but they're working for it. And it says on their website, without the red heifer, the divine service of the holy temple cannot be resumed. Now, the Temple Institute wants a new temple, but they say we can't really resume sacrifices there unless we have the red heifer. So it's, it's seen by them as an obstacle, even if the temple is built, to actually having temple worship. It goes on to say, in truth, the fate of the entire world depends on the red heifer, for God has ordained that its ashes alone are the single missing ingredient for the reinstatement of biblical purity and thereafter the rebuilding of the holy temple. It's the way that they're going to find this elusive peace. It all hinges on a cow. And, I'm like, that's so like man. Focusing on a cow when we have Christ, we have Christ. looking at the, the hair of a, of a cow with a microscope to tell if the colors are different or not, instead of celebrating the King and risen Savior and Lord who shed his own blood already so he could be redeemed. It's Jesus, not a red heifer, who cleanses and purifies us from sin. He gives us perfect peace, something a cow could never do. Like that tool, it, it was proved, in, in, it just didn't work. It never worked, and it's not going to work. But Jesus, He is the one. He is the Savior. He's obtained everlasting redemption. In addition to the blood of Christ cleansing us from sin, the Lamb of God cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Keeping the law did nothing to deal with your guilty conscience for sin. I believe there are many Hebrews of old and Christians today who are plagued by a guilty conscience, they endure erroneously. I saw a comic strip the other day. Uh, it was like an, an older couple, and the man's helping out around the house. Like he's got his apron on, he's washing some dishes, and he's doing the, the laundry. And, and, and the wife's kind of like, oh, what's going on here? I'm a little suspicious. And uh, it was doctored to say, that the punchline was, you bought another smoker, didn't you? <laughs> the idea being that he knew he had overstepped the bounds by buying this smoker. So he was going to make up for it. He was going to do something good to kind of outweigh the bad and uh, soften the blow. He, 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 he was, had a guilty conscience. The man's guilty conscience is what moved him to wash those dishes and to do the washing, to put away, to empty the dishwasher, to appease his wife. The law is very happy to tell you what to do to find God's favor and what to avoid to obtain God's favor. And how many Christians are, are burdened with a guilty conscience when Jesus has forgiven you and cleansed you from all your sin? And you justify a guilty conscience because you know you're guilty. You justify holding on to it because you're, it could be you're trying to make up for what you've done wrong. You say, I deserve to feel guilty because I'm guilty, instead of repenting and being cleansed in your conscience because Jesus has forgiven your sin. You believe that when he returns, he's going to, you're going to be caught up to meet with him. You're going to be redeemed and go to heaven with him forever because your sins have been washed away. What about your guilty conscience? You know, he's come to to cleanse that too. How can we justify holding on to that? When he's cleansed you, he's given you eternal redemption. People try to earn their salvation by good works. People try to cling to their salvation by good works, but that's not how it's obtained. It's by grace through faith in Christ. If you're driven by a guilty, guilt, guilty conscience to do good works, they are dead works. They're not good works. Good works are born out of a good conscience that's been made clean by God through faith in him and what he has promised and what he has done. Trying to do good to clear your guilty conscience is like looking for an elusive red heifer rather than Jesus. It's a tool that could never get the job done. We're called to repent, to rely upon Jesus for cleansing, forgiveness, for guidance. Hebrews 9.15, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise, promise of the eternal inheritance. For where, where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Through his death, he's redeemed all sin committed under the first. When you write a last will and testament, it's not in force until you die, right? That would be odd if it's in force before you die, but no, it's it's only after you die that it's like, all right, it's in full effect now, because the one who wrote it they, they named their executor, who's now going to divvy out the estate according to the, the desire of the deceased. To establish a new covenant that provided eternal redemption in heaven, it required the death of Jesus. He needed to die so that we could receive the inheritance he promised us. If he doesn't die, we can't receive the promise. There's no inheritance to be given. Jesus, now risen from the dead, he's the executor, he's also the judge. He's going to make sure that everything is doled out according to the Father's will, that we receive the inheritance that he's promised us. Often the issue is not God's ability, but our unwillingness to believe his promises and to abide in faith in Christ. When it comes to settling in a state, there can be a lot of confusion and heartbreak. Many people have had, have suffered much over a messy estate. Sometimes the intent of the departed is unclear. Other times a a hidden will or an unknown will is brought up that contradicts something else. Maybe there was a verbal agreement that was never written down. And and so there's confusion about how to settle these things. And they're settled in courts, really to no one's satisfaction. It's no one feels that it's really the intention of the departed is being carried out properly. Nothing can be further from the truth when it comes to the inheritance Christians receive through the gospel. It's like when we're born again, we're we're like, Lord, please write my name in the Lamb's book of life. And we just want to be saved. We want to be forgiven. And then we realize later that we have received a legacy we never even realized we had. It's like, you've heard of those people that have lived a very, uh, let's say, modest life, and then when their belongings are gone through, they're like, wow, wow, there, are like, there is like so much money tucked away, really expensive items, where the estate's worth millions, but you would have never known by the way they lived. And so they're going through all the books, and they're, oh, a hidden compartment here. Oh, what's behind this bookcase? There's a whole room that we didn't know existed. And it's like we come to Christ, and we begin to read his word. We were just happy with salvation at the beginning, but we start reading it, and we're like, wow, it's like, here, here's a letter, and and there's something for me in here. There's a message from someone I love speaking to me. And they're like, oh, have you gone through those boxes? Oh, they've just been there for years collecting dust. Well, this these were you know, his or her boxes, and you start going through them. Oh, there's these really cool keepsakes and great memories and and promises and stuff. But this is like God now, where it's like we have whole houses, whole suburbs, whole nation's worth of promises and blessings that we never knew existed that God's word opens our eyes to see. And why don't we just start with being free of a guilty conscience? That's pretty good. Just start right there. That's something God has for you. He promises that. There's a world of blessings that God has for his children that you don't know about, you haven't received, you haven't believed, but it's there. Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. You haven't seen, heard, or dreamed of the blessings God has for you, but God's revealed them by his spirit. He continues to reveal them, and he's given us the spirit in verse 12, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Through God, we have received Uh, forgiveness for free. It cost Jesus his life. It cost him everything when he shed his blood on Calvary. But we have forgiveness for free. We have the grace of God for free. A clean conscience, that's free. You don't have to try to work that off. You have that freedom in him. Being born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, that is free. Having received such love and grace from God, then our our Motive, then, is to serve Him, not from a guilty conscience, but out of thanksgiving and love. He opens our eyes, He opens our hearts to receive His everlasting treasures. Hebrews 9, verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry, and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission." Reading the law, knowing the law was not enough. There was sacrifice required, that shedding of blood. Everything dedicated, that means consecrated or, to, it means to consecrate or renew, was sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. So the book of the law, we, we try to keep our Bibles clean. You know, you get that coffee in there, it's a bummer. But they're like sprinkling some blood on it, on the tabernacle, on the people at one stage. In Exodus 24, 8, it says, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. Now, we see blood as a biohazard. We try to not get it on us. We we wear gloves, and doctors and nurses, you know, they have shields, they don't want to contact blood but for the blood under the old covenant for a short season it was renewal that the life was in the blood it like gave life to the things that it touched because it was under the covenant of law that death of the beast and the blood poured out it provided temporary remission of sin under the first covenant people who sinned you would bring an animal you would place your hand on the head of the animal while it was slaughtered to to Symbolize your sin now being put upon this animal who was dying in your place, and that blood would be poured out on the altar; it would be sprinkled. And that spiritual principle in verse twenty-two—it's consistent with the new covenant that says, "Without shedding of blood, there is no remission." We we use the word remission in terms usually of cancer, like my cancer's in remission, um, and it means in the Greek freedom, pardon, deliverance, liberty, forgiveness. If cancer is in remission, it means it's free from the signs or symptoms of cancer. You're not suffering those effects at the moment. But being in remission leaves the door open for recurrence, right? It's not cancer-free forever. It's just in remission. The point is, that's kind of how it was under the law. You needed to be sprinkled again. You needed to have another sacrifice. But under the new covenant, that all changed because Jesus, once for all, paid the price. Hebrews 9 verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to have suffered again since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. It was acceptable for the copy and the shadow of things from heaven to be, to be uh, sprinkled with the blood of animals. The real and the heavenly required a better sacrifice. Jesus did not go into the holy of holies with the blood of an ox. He went into the presence of the Father with his own blood. In the presence of God in all his glory. So Jesus put away that once and for all, he sacrificed himself for the sins of mankind. The law required that repetition of sacrifice, but not Christ who was offered once to bear the sins of many. To say that Jesus must be sacrificed over and over it robs him of the reality of our being cleansed from sin. He does not suffer again and again with every communion service. He is sacrificed once. He has offered himself once for all and we are cleansed from all sin. It says in Colossians 2:13. That's past, present and future. Forever we are cleansed from sin. Romans 3 emphasizes strongly we are saved by faith in Christ, apart from works, we've been justified freely. Our salvation and cleansing, it's secured by Jesus himself. It says that men it's appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment by God. There, are, there is judgment for all people. Those whose names are found written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be judged uh, according to a stewardship for reward for how we have conducted ourselves on earth. Those who are unbelieving and have rejected Christ, they will be judged according to the law, which will condemn them, and they will go to hell for eternity. And the principle of sacrifice, it shows that the suffering for sin is eternal because a, a sinner is unable to make the payment required that's legal tender in heaven. They do not have that divine power that's only in Christ. He himself is the only acceptable sacrifice because he came from heaven and has gone back up to heaven to obtain that eternal redemption. Since sinners cannot offer a perfect payment, their suffering will be continual and eternal. It's like trying to post bail uh, from prison with monopoly money, something that just is not accepted. It's like, this isn't even money. We can't accept this. You're still in prison. And that, it's just that way forever. And what a horrible state to be in that bondage Trying to cleanse your conscience by being a better person or a better Christian cannot cleanse your conscience of guilt or release from bondage of sin. Faith in Jesus does because he was offered once to bear the sins of many. It says to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. as a kid, I always. Look forward to my dad coming home from work. That was always a fun time to say hi. And, uh, now, it, it was really fun, except the day that I did something wrong. Now, my, my mother was very good about disciplining us kids and correcting us, but there were occasions where the transgression was of a sort that it was like, wait until your dad gets come home, and you get to talk to him. So my dad, they would have a little conference, and then, then he would talk to me. And, and I did not appreciate waiting for that. Right? I was dreading him getting home because I knew we were going to have a talk. and, and uh, It wasn't because I doubted his love for me. It wasn't because I justified what I had done as being okay and that I had a really valid argument. It wasn't that at all. It was, uh, it was fear. It was fear of punishment. And I'll tell you, once we had talked, the discipline had been meted out uh, lovingly, after we had prayed and embraced, I could have walked on air leaving that room. Have you felt that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you you realize your guilt, you know the hammer's coming down, the hammer comes down, you, there is suffering, but that acceptance, that forgiveness, that's like, that's all gone. That's all in the past, and now we can go forward Man, I was looking forward to dinner. I was looking forward to a night with the family. I could play with my dad and not be afraid that I was in trouble because that was taken care of. Can you imagine how it would feel day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, to have a guilty conscience, dreading the return of Christ when you could have been eager to see him, happy to see him, can't wait for judgment, because you know you've been forgiven, because you know you have been made righteous by grace through faith in what he has done. And some of you don't need to imagine what that's like, because you're doing that right now. You are laboring under a guilty conscience. You're trying to cleanse it by doing good works. That will not work. Trusting what Jesus has done for you, that is the way. He is the way. You've tried to do what's right. You still do wrong. A guilty conscience is why you're here today. We can look forward to meeting with God because we have been cleansed from all sin. We have been made righteous as he is righteous. Our sins have been put as far as us from the east, from the west. We have been made holy and righteous. His appearance will not be our destruction but our salvation. So when we are conscious of our sin, let us repent. Let's put off those sins, but be, be forgi- receive the forgiveness, receive the cleansing of your conscience so that we are now moved by a good conscience, conscience to serve and honor God. God's given you a body. It has, it has its flaws and weaknesses. The same can be true of the conscience. It can operate under misguided convictions. The Bible says a conscience can be weak. It can be seared by hypocrisy. It can be diseased. It can be defiled. God's word, it, like our bodies, need correction. Oh, your spine's out of alignment. We need to fix that. We need to change the, the kind of shoes that you wear. We need that correction with our conscience as well. Because if we're still burdened by a guilty conscience, when we've been forgiven, we need to correct that according to God's word and his promise. 1 Timothy 1.5, it says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. It may be that you've been allowing a guilty conscience to direct you rather than joy and peace and rest and love of Jesus Christ, the freedom that you have in Him. Jesus died to cleanse you of sin and a guilty conscience so we would be free to eagerly be looking to Him, eagerly coming to Him, and walking in obedience to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would minister these words to our hearts, that you would show us, if there is in us a guilty conscience, a a conscience that is laboring needlessly, thinking that we can, by doing things, we can change how we feel. But thank you, Lord, that you have done far greater in sending Jesus who obtained eternal redemption for us, who once for all died for sinners, that we can have a new life, new motives, a new heart, a renewed mind, a new consciousness of the Holy Spirit within us who guides us into all truth according to your word. And Lord, if our conscience is bent out of shape, Lord, straighten it out, reform it. Help us to see that we have been carrying a burden that Jesus has died to free us from. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus, for the hope that we have in you. And thank you that it's by grace we have been saved, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for the work that you're doing, and I pray we would rejoice in that work, and we'd walk out of here on air because you have set us free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.